Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, After having been through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood. And I'm so excited that you are listening to season five of the podcast, where we are starting off each month with a different young woman sharing her faith story and allowing her the space to ask some tough questions about God and faith. And this month, you may have heard our friend Zoe from France. Zoe shared in that first episode about her experience with faith, her experience as a foreign exchange student this past school year and how some of that challenged her agnosticism, living with a Christian family. And so in the episode that you're about to listen to, I was so excited to have this conversation with apologist, speaker, and author, Mary Jo Sharp. She has an incredible ministry, and I'm so excited to share. I'm so excited for you to know who she is. Um, But uh, Zoe couldn't be here for this recording. So on her behalf, I ask a lot of questions, and I hope that as you listen, um, you'll really appreciate this conversation. I know I did. I just think what Mary Jo is doing is incredible. Please check out her series right now. You can look at it on YouTube. We'll put a link in the show notes, and you'll hear more about it here in a second. Uh, But enjoy, friend. Also, real quick, we are looking for advertisers for season six. If you're listening to this, you have a business, you have a ministry, or you have a podcast, something that goes along with what we're doing here on Finding Something Real, and you would like to advertise with us, please reach out. We'd love to chat with you. As always, you can check out more information about how to be involved with Finding Something Real on our webpage, findingsomethingreal.com. There's lots of information there. Just click on support at the top of the page. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. Zoe couldn't be here today, but we have a very special guest joining us, a former atheist who came to faith. Mary Jo Sharp has experienced two worlds of American culture, the post-Christian culture of the Pacific Northwest and the evangelical culture of the Bible Belt. She first encountered apologetics in her own spiritual search while seeking answers. Mary Jo is now an assistant professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University and the founder and director of Confident Christianity Apologetics Ministry. Mary Jo is a popular speaker and author of several books, including her recent work, Why I Still Believe. A clear communicator with a heart for people, Mary Jo finds great joy in sharing the deep truths of her Lord and Savior. She lives with her husband and family 
in the Portland metro area, Oregon. Mary Jo, thank you for being here. Hey, thank you for having me on. Oh, I'm so excited. So tell me more about your ministry, Confident Christianity. <laughs> the ministry I never intended to have. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't. It was uh, my ministry is an apologetics ministry that started um, because of a assignment in a class where we were asked to do a blog on evidence of the resurrection. Mm. And, but if you weren't that public, which being a Northwesterner, that was really public for faith for me. Um, I, then you could just have a private conversation with someone about the same material evidence of the resurrection. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to do private. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want everybody thinking I'm a like weird fanatic or something. (laughs) So I did that and, you know, I got good grades on it. Afterwards, it just bugged me. It's like, what am I, why don't I want to be public with my Christianity? And so it bugged me long enough that I finally gave in and said, fine, I'm going to start up a blog and it will, you know, we'll call it actually back in the day, it was called two chicks apologetics. Cause there were two of us, <laughs> and, uh, the, but confident Christianity has always been its subtitle. And, uh, yeah, basically we started that blog just to sort of, you know, engage these hard conversations. That was back in 2006, you know, when blogs were a big deal. Yeah. (laughs) Or they were a thing. I don't know if they were a big deal. They were just a thing. So uh, yeah, I started that up. Was it 2006? Yeah, it was a long time ago. And um, that sort of flourished into a ministry that alongside of, I had two friends that um, were at school. One of them was at school with me at Biola and they were actively debating Muslims and atheists. Uh, Their names were David and Nabil. And they Mm -hmm. just sort of scooped me up and dragged me along kicking and screaming into ministry. (laughs) (laughs) David Wood and Abil Qureshi, correct? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've I've, uh, not to interrupt you, but I've listened to their story. It's so fascinating. So if you're listening to this, Google Nabil Qureshi and David yeah. Wood because they have an incredible story. They, um, I asked him one time if I could write a review of one of their debates, and <laughs> that was the beginning of the end for me. No, it was, <laughs> that was how I got scooped up into this. Is they they really appreciated my work, and um, yeah, they just said, "Hey, we would like you to come along and help us out with all this stuff," and that really put me into the public light. Mm-hmm. That along with starting that blog. So it was really a ministry I didn't intend to have. Um, I was just going to write a blog post on defense of the resurrection. Wow. So what does the ministry look like today? Uh, today we've been here. Oh my goodness. What is that? 16 years. Um, and done a lot of public speaking, a couple of debates with Muslims. I've written several Bible studies. I've written curriculum with Lifeway. Um, I've done a lot of, you know, teaching and training over the years and it, and also led to a pro- professorship, excuse me, as uh, sort of like an active apologist. And so I've developed courses to help reproduce myself, to create other apologists or to help people who are getting uh, all this knowledge in these sort of hard questions of Christianity to figure out how they're going to utilize it in ministry. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, You are working on a video series right now called Dark Room Faith. Would you share a little bit more about that? What What is that about? Yeah, so Dark Room Faith is a 14-part apologetics video series and full curriculum that is freely available online, and it is Gen Z narrative-driven. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that we we actually did it like a casting call for Gen Z stories about their struggles with Christianity and faith 
Uh, and so they came back with all these stories about what they are currently dealing with and, and what their questions are. And so these videos are actually, some of them are like, we almost rip their way of saying, you know, their struggle directly from these stories. And we put it into these videos so you can see, um, yeah, what they're struggling with. But we also coupled it with a world-class production company. And so these videos are aesthetically pleasing because we knew if we were going to, um, try to get these out to Gen Z that they are going to, they're a society that's or a culture of aesthetics, right? They're constantly flooded with visual imagery that is of the highest quality. So we knew we had to get this up there. And I think that's what we've achieved. And so mm -hmm. Darkroom, if you want to, you know, use this as a curriculum, if you want to use it with your own ch children, or if you want to just let somebody that you know that could benefit from it, you can send them to darkroomfaith.com. And that's where they can access the full curriculum. I mean, it comes with PowerPoints, leaders guides, and wow. then all the videos. Wow, that's amazing. And we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, I love your passion for Gen Z. Where does that come from, Mary Jo? Where did this passion for apologetics and tell me your story? Okay, well, I will start with where does my passion for Gen Z come from? <laughs> uh, ever since I was a sophomore in high school, I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be educators. So I thought that was going to be in music. And that was what I pursued. So I have been a public school band director. Uh, so my my passion for students is just, it's always been there. I've always wanted to be a teacher and I love being around young people and their ideas and their courage to just ask hard questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think they're just, it's a great age of exploration and it's fun to be a part of that with them. Uh, so that, that's the, uh, why, why do I care about Gen Z? Just, I'm an educator at heart. Um, yeah. So that's why. And then how I got here was that I, myself, I grew up atheist. Uh, I did not grow up in church. And but I did grow up with like this sense of awe and wonder at the universe in which we lived and this rich uh, tradition in the arts. Like my parents, my dad was a musician. My mom loved Shakespearean plays. And so like I had all of this influence uh, that caused me to wonder, what is this all for? Um, are we just a speck of dust in a vast and different universe? And then it all dies that heat death of the universe and nothing really ultimately matters, even if I have some relative significance. So I started asking those kind of questions in my later teen years. And uh, my high school band director was a Christian who hadn't shared his faith before and certainly not with a public school student because he was worried he could lose his job. Hmm. So he um, he shared with me, he just felt really burdened for me, shared his faith with me. And it was basically, here's a Bible. Like he gave me a Bible. And so when you go off to college, you're gonna have hard questions. I hope you'll turn to this. Hmm. And then he prayed with me. Uh, and then he worried that I was going to turn him into the, <laughs> to the principal. <laughs> I guess I didn't respond really well. I don't know. Um, hmm. But anyway, so he made a big impact on me. Of course, like I said, I, I wanted to be a school teacher. I wanted to teach music. And a lot of that was the love of music and students that I saw in him. So um, anyway, I read that Bible and it, it caused me to wonder <laughs> again, like, what is this all about? I, I started finding answers to my sense of morality to my sense of justice that I had, that there is good and evil. Some things are the way things should be. Some things are not that. And it was making sense of that. So when I went off to college, I started exploring faith and I found a, um, a church where I understood the gospel and I actually trusted Jesus for uh, my salvation. Hmm. But then I encountered the church life, the church experience and Christians and I saw a lot of hypocrisy. 
Um, I saw a lot of people who really weren't committed to what I saw in the Bible, like what the teachings were and how we're supposed to grow the beauty and goodness that was in there. The truth that was in there. I saw a lot of pride, self-righteousness, um, uncaring, uh, attitudes towards others. And that caused me to question my faith. And that's really when I started to dig into apologetics was when I had all those questions about what is it I've gotten myself into and is this real? Uh, how do I know it? Wow. So for somebody listening who hasn't heard us uh, talk about apologetics before, would you share what apologetics means to somebody who may not be familiar with that? So for a person who is interested in apologetics, the, the word apologetics is a transliterated word out of Koine Greek which is the Greek uh, language in the New Testament. And it just, it means apology. So it's not the I'm sorry kind of apology. It's the lawyer kind of apology. It's making a defense or a case for something that you uh, believe. So in 1 Peter 3.15 in the Bible, you actually find this being used by Peter. where He says that you're always to be prepared to give a defense of the reason of the hope that is in you to anyone who asks of you. And that's sort of it. That word defense is the word apologia, apologetics. So that's sort of where you could go like for a direct use of the term uh, in the Bible as to why we make a case for our belief in God. Hmm. Well, I've started reading your book, Why I Still Believe, A Former Atheist Reckoning with the Bad Reputation Christians Give a Good God. Um, and I haven't been able to finish it before our interview today, but <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> why did you not deconstruct completely? Um, a lot of young people today are familiar with that term. There's a lot of people who are leaving the faith because of what you just described. Uh, yeah. They see a lot of hypocrisy. They see a lot of double-mindedness maybe and ugly things. You describe in your book some um, encounters that you had that uh, I would not take kindly to either. Um, and I... <laughs> was um, impressed that you didn't use four letter words to describe your reaction. <laughs> Maybe you did. You just left that out because of your publisher. I don't know. But um, what made you decide to go the route of digging deeper and not totally destroying what you had? Yeah, I think part of it was that I realized that the, um, the behaviors of Christians couldn't be the litmus test for the truth of Christianity. Uh, Cause I couldn't, I mean, I wasn't doing that with atheism. There's some really nasty atheists out there <laughs> as well. Yeah. You know, there's nasty Christians too, but I mean, I wasn't doing that with anything else. So I knew that that couldn't be the, the way that I decided whether or not Christianity was true. And it coming to that understanding was hard because there was definitely a time where I wanted Christianity to be false so mm -hmm. that I could return to my former atheism or maybe an agnosticism um, because I I liked my friends uh, growing up better than a lot of the people I met in the church. They To me, they were better people. And that was hard for me to reconcile with my Christian faith. Like these are the people that profess that God is the standard of goodness. These are the people that go around saying you need to conform yourself to Christlikeness, which means conform yourself to that standard, right, of goodness. And yet I was seeing almost no serious commitment to that. And so I had to, yeah, I had to come to terms with the fact that that could not be a litmus test. That couldn't be whether or not I said Christianity was true. Hmm. Shouldn't it be though? Shouldn't, <laughs> uh, shouldn't believers look different than the rest of the world? And you even talk about in your book about how I think it's, I think it's in your book, um, the, st the 
that statistically, um, a lot of Christians don't live any differently than the world. Um, so when you're reconciling what should be and what isn't, um, how do you turn to Jesus in that? How do you turn to Jesus when it's like, uh, I see a lot of better people in the atheist agnostic camp. What difference does Jesus really make? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, so there's, <laughs> I mean, there's so much I would like to say on this, like what does difference does Jesus really make? But I will say, so I'm going to go a little theological on you, but I will say that um, generally if God is creator and he has infused this world or whatever term you want to use there, but with his goodness, then we do see general um, the general grace of God in others. That means an atheist can be a good, a morally good person, right? So there's, it's not that, um, you know, Chris, and Christians can be bad people. <laughs> so um, that's sort of like, what difference does he make? What difference does Jesus make? Well, that he's a, you know, Jesus is part of the Trinity. Who's, so he's um, one of the people who was around or person, excuse me, who was around at creation. And so this is his creation. So there are, uh, general graces that I can find in the person who's not a Christian, right? And mm -hmm. uh, so that that's kind of how I rec the question of how do I reconcile it is mm -hmm. uh, through general grace. Yeah. Um, well, let's get back to that question. What do you receive from your faith in Jesus Christ that you haven't found anywhere else? Why? Why did you stick with Jesus? Oh, that's a good one. Um, well, so if on a personal level, how has Jesus changed my life is different from sort of like the theoretical level of mm -hmm. why do I believe he changed my life? Um, so I can speak to the change that I've seen in my own life um, because I've had 28 years with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I will say up front is that for me, I'm the kind of person that the change is slow. Mm -hmm. um, you've... I don't know if you've heard these stories of people who God just came into their life and instantly they were healed of something or they were, you know, they stopped drinking alcohol or something. I don't have anything like that. I have a slow change um, because I'm a selfish person and I'm full of pride and I get defensive. And so it takes a long time for God to tear things like that down. <laughs> um, I've seen who, um, but I will say this in reflecting back upon my life, um, I have already seen who I should be uh, in the course of reflecting on my family background, my life situations, and the things that sort of aid and abet the pride and defensiveness and selfishness in me. Um, so I'm and thinking through that, I should actually be a, a bitter person. I should be a person that ha has uh, despair because I've been brought to precipices of despair in my life. Um, but knowing for me, that there is a God who's external from me, uh, who really exists and is not just a wishful thinking thing, um, but who actually exists and has given me the gift of a comforter, the Holy Spirit is sort of like, so for people who, I don't want to get in so Christianese that they, it doesn't make any sense, but the Holy Spirit being a comforter, a consciousness, a, a, a sort of a whisper, you know, <laughs> to the soul, um, knowing that he's real and that he's actively seeking to partner with me in growing me and changing me towards that Christ-likeness, uh, that makes a real big difference in my life. And I can look back over the years and say, I should be X and I'm not. And what has been the big difference? 
Um, and I was just talking to my daughter about this the other night. And I said, you know, honestly, I can't say that it's really anything else other than this grace of God, this Jesus in my life who is constantly there for me. And, uh, to whom I have seen ultimate sacrifice and love, unconditional love, uh, a person who was ultimately for the sake of others. And that example, that model, and then his constant ministering to me, um, that makes a big difference. And it's very different from something like just a, a psychological kind of positive thinking, um, because it's not just my own internalized thoughts uh, going on there. It is that there, when I say God is real, I keep emphasizing this because there's an external forces working for my good. Hmm. And that's a, that's a big piece of this. Um, I'm not alone. I'm not working this on my own. It's not just in my own power, um, but that there is something external to me that is partnering with me, working alongside me, even as slowly as that change is coming for me. Well, Zoe couldn't be here, uh, so I'll play devil's advocate for her. Sure. sure. <laughs> um, and I just got back from an apologetics conference myself, so I know these are hard questions, but you've been doing this for a long time. Oh, um, we'll see. So for Zoe, who has maybe not experienced any of what you just shared, and the idea of a foreign good force outside of her seems, you know, just maybe ludicrous or, you know, no one else believes that. How do you know that what you believe about God is not just some self-fulfilling prophecy of, I believe this, therefore, you know, I'm going to see this outcome versus something real. How do you know it's real? Oh, so many different ways. Cause I like some of the guys in the Bible, I'm skeptical and she needs to, you know, like explore that because like, for instance, Joseph and Mary, the quintessential Christmas story, right. Of the birth of Jesus. When Mary comes to Joseph and says that she's pregnant, he doesn't go, oh, wow, supernatural pregnancy. That <laughs> happens. What does he do? He disbelieves her. And because he's a good man, he doesn't want to put her away uh, in public shame. So he puts her away quietly. He makes plans to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So just like there are skeptics in the Bible about this sort, sort of stuff, um, I too am skeptical about these kinds of things. That's part of why I went on that journey to say like, what well, is any of this real? Is, you know, am I just, is this just a positive thinking on my part or what's going on here? And that's where I go back to, well, what are the evidences for a real God? Mm -hmm. um, is there any, um, and are there any that are convincing, um, what would even convincing arguments look like? Don't forget that piece because you can be talked at all day long or investigate arguments all day long, but you don't have any criteria for what would actually change your mind or what's a good argument or how you get one. You can go your whole life and deny anything really. Um, and we, I know people who they are so good at rationalizing stuff that they can rationalize almost anything they want to be true. Um, yeah. so, uh, I, I acknowledge that, but what, what are some of the things like for me, um, one of the things that I think about is, well, why do I, why do I think that the Christian faith is real? Um, or that God is real as far as the Christian, as far as Christianity, did we get it right? You know, that kind of thing, as opposed to other belief systems or philosophical frameworks that are out there. And I think that's a really big piece of this is that I have come to an understanding through my investigation um, that the truth claims of Christianity are 
uh, true. They are not just true for me. Um, because remember, I didn't really want them to be true when I was doing my investigation. Um, but they are true. And, and I can talk a little bit more about that as you want. Like, how do I know that? Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah. kind of how far do you want to go into yeah, it? Yeah, I, I want to know the most compelling reasons. What compelled you that, wow, this is actually real? This isn't just something that I want to believe or something that, you know, I'm hearing from the community around me. But this, this really happened. And I have to, you know, deal with the reality of that. <laughs> yeah. So the most compelling arguments to me would um, be like the moral law argument that everybody has a should or an ought. They believe in justice. They believe in that these things, that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And they may not say it like that because they have that takes a certain kind of exposure to certain arguments to say it in those ways. But people generally say things like that's not fair or, um, you know, that person's a jerk, shouldn't be like that, you know, so they're referencing some kind of standard um, that it should be. So what they need to do is explore, well, what are you talking about? What should be? And as I look at Christianity, as I look at what the Bible describes about the way we should be in relationship to God and what he meant for us for human flourishing and unconditional love. And um, I tend to see that as, oh, this is what they're referencing when they say, a standard of good that should be there. This is it. This is the, it has to be located somewhere. Where is it? It can't just come out of thin air or ever evolving different situations because then what would be good in one area, you know, one society wouldn't be good in another. So you might come up with a society that rape is good in another society. It's horrible. So there's going to be something that says, no, it's always wrong at all times in all places throughout history. So what is that thing? And I have found God to be that thing that that grounding of goodness um and that evil is the privation of that goodness mm-hmm. so that's one of the big arguments for me um is a moral grounding and a grounding for our, our oughtness and that we say things ought be different and we're pointing to that standard over and over mm-hmm. uh, locating that and then the other one uh, initially was the evidence for the resurrection that we have um, these guys who were absolutely there <laughs> when Jesus died and was put on the cross, public display of his death and one of the most gruesome deaths known to man, that uh, torture on the cross. And then um, after he died, and remember, this is a tight area. I've been over to Jerusalem. This isn't a vast metropolis like New York City. It's a tight area. Mm-hmm. And so he dies there. And after he dies is when they get their courage, like they're questioning him, they're the people who are running away after he dies, they're going around under pain of death. They've been told, don't proclaim this. We'll put you to death. And they're going around saying, well, we can't not proclaim it because it happened. Mm. Um, and they're willing to die gruesomely for that. Now I can see people who are deluded doing that, who absolutely don't know if they're wrong. So like a Jim Jones follower, something like that. I cannot see people who absolutely know experientially they were there. Like they know it. Like they know it, like they know what they ate for breakfast that morning, saying that um, Jesus is the risen Lord. That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, So that one started to work on me saying something happened back then and people don't do this and they don't have mass hallucinations. So there's that one, that objection. And so I started to unpack that going, well, what causes this? They saw something. Um, And I believe it was the risen Jesus. Um, So those two were initially the ones that um, really struck me. And I had to grapple with those for a while. Um, 
for a long while. And then there were others that maybe we'll get to talk about <laughs> as we go. What what do you uh, lean on the most nowadays? What is the thing that you go, wow, if he, people ask me a question about why I believe in the God of the Bible, I keep coming back to this. I really have to keep coming back to this sense that of human value and purpose uh, and meaning in the universe um, because it, it needs a grounding somewhere. Uh, so much of what we talk about when we are active in causes uh, is about the rights of individuals and how they deserve or they should be treated or they have value. And yet the conversation rarely goes to where does that come from? Hmm. Because we've seen whole people groups dehumanize and devalue other people groups in history and just put them to death. So if we want to say, well, that that's something that's ever evolving and it depends on a culture or, you know, some subjective point of view, that's you or me or what we decide is morally good or what our parents decided was morally good or whatever, that's going to be problematic because we could actually come out with a society uh, that looks like um, Nazi Germany or, you know, that, that whole era or, um, the, when the Russians put the Ukraine, starved the Ukraine, you know, we could beat that. And we could actually think we're doing good. Like this is what is actually good for mankind. We could define it that way. And that's, I always have to remind people, you know, Hitler didn't wake up in the morning, twist his little mustache and say, what's good for bad. What's good for evil. Mm. You know, he was doing what he thought was right and good. And so we have to really take a hard look at that and say, but do we believe that? Do we believe that that was right and good? We didn't, which is why we tried him for crimes against humanity, which means human beings have inherent value. From what? Where do they get it from? And for me, being made in the image of God um, means I have an eternal quality to me that no one can ever take away or devalue, no matter what they do to my body or my you know, public persona or whatever, I am already purposed because God created me. So he meant for me to be here. And I already have immense value because not only did he create me, but he called me very good. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to Genesis account of creation, when he created mankind, he called mankind very good. So now there's huge value when an eternal being makes a judgment call like that. Um, no, contingent human, <laughs> creative human can ever take that away from me. And until there's another like source that that is, is that strong for me to consider, I don't think I can be moved off of the human value, meaning and purpose as being one of the, the ultimate arguments for the existence of God. Hmm. You've mentioned evil a couple of times, and you just mentioned that human beings are good. Then why do we need God if we're good? What's what's the relationship between good and evil? And would you touch on the gospel here, Mary Jo? <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay. So there's the gospel, and then there's also the problem of evil that goes with it. Um, so I do believe that what God intended was for good, but part of the goodness that He gave us was um, freedom. Like He has a He has a will. He's able to do things and enact things that come to consequence. He gave us that as well. So we have that. We can make real choice with real consequence. When we abuse that freedom, it comes to destruction, to ruin. Um, so Christians will use the scriptural uh, Romans 6 passage that says the wages of sin is death. 
And sometimes that just flies over the head of people. It means that evil comes to destruction. The ultimate destruction is death, mm-hmm. the destruction of life. So um, that's what we find ourselves in is destruction and death. Uh, and even the Bible says that the, the whole earth is groaning under the weight of our sin, our evil, our decisions and the, the um, interaction with our evil. So what has been done about that? nothing are we still waiting or oh you just have to figure it out and hopefully your good outweighs your bad that's not what's going to happen uh i always believe that if you're the problem you're pretty much not the solution as far as mankind uh, on a whole the generality i'm not going into psychology um but theoretically like mankind is the problem and we keep making stories about this like superman comes from another place to save mankind because he becomes the problem and uh so we have this understanding that we are problematic, even mm. at our best. So what has God done about that? Um, he provided for that. And that's the incarnation of Jesus Christ who came to be with us. He suffered alongside us. And he took on the full consequence of human evil, which is the destruction of life. So he dies. And then um, what God did was he took where all of this evil was going, which was the destruction of life, and he overturned it. He set things back aright to his good creation by rising from the dead and putting back life where we were putting death. And that to me is the importance of the gospel, is that God overturned death and destruction by redeeming his creation because it is very good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he gives back life. Another atheist follow-up question to that, but don't you love it? <laughs> it's so nice when they're not here because then I can just <laughs> oh, you go can to help. town. Yeah, you can go. You can ask them. But uh, okay, so let's say there is a God. Let's say Jesus really did rise from the dead. Um, but don't all religions pretty much lead to the same path? Like why? Why Christianity is so exclusive? It's so narrow. Why can't you just believe whatever you want to believe? And we'll all get there eventually one day. (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) Um, So that goes back to one of the reasons why I actually believe in Christianity. And, you know, how can how can you discern between all of these different views? I will say, because it was mentioned in the question, the way that you were framing the question, I don't think Christianity is I think it's inclusive because anybody can come to God and it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. It doesn't matter race or what your background religion is. Anybody can come to God and find salvation and redemption in him. So um, I, I want to do a little bit of back work, though, on the bigger question of the um, why why Christianity when there's so many different worldviews out there. Um, I think a, a huge influence on our thinking about this particular question has come from an epistemological division on the matter of truth. Okay, so that means... On our theory of knowledge, we've divided it. Uh, and this division has been really well described by the late Francis Schaeffer mm. and by my current colleague, uh, Nancy Piercy. They call this division, they, they make uh, knowledge akin to a house. And then they say there's like two stories of the house is what we've done. We've, we've taken knowledge and we say it fits into one of these two stories. So the lower story of the house we describe as things that constitute real knowledge, what we can actually know. And we say that's data, science, reason. 
The upper story of the house contains all the things that seem to give life meaning and purpose and value, but they're too personal or subjective to make any kind of objective judgment on it. So we've relegated religion, morality, beauty up there. Now this split thinking that's behind this question uh, is relatively a young idea in the history of ideas. I, I think we need to know that because once, you know, when you live in an era, you think, well, have, people have always thought this way. It's not so. It is a newer idea, but it's been around long enough in Western culture to really be a sort of background informant uh, and one that people aren't directly thinking about when they consider religion, morality, philosophical frameworks. But there's a problem with this way of thinking. And we're going to look at the just one of them that pertains to this question. And that is that just because there's some subjective aspects to religions doesn't mean that religions are wholly subjective. Or uh, if you're going to consider atheism as well, like worldview, you could just say worldviews, just because there's some subjective aspects of worldviews doesn't mean that they're all subjective. And that's because um, religions and worldviews or philosophical frameworks, they make truth claims. And those claims can be confirmed or denied through evidence and reason. Hmm. So now, because mine's Christianity, I can give you a few. Um, for example, the Bible claims that Jesus died and resurrected from the dead. And one of the authors in the Bible, Paul, he states this as an objective claim in the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, it's in the section we've labeled as chapter 15. So it's this passage is really important because Paul goes so far as to say that if Jesus, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we should all move on with our mm -hmm. lives because belief in the, in Jesus as resurrected would not only be false, but it, you're saying he's the resurrected Lord. So it's giving, it's giving false testimony about God. So you're breaking one of the 10 commandments, but in relationship to God, this is a big, big statement by Paul because he, his background is a Jewish religious leader. So um, what Paul's doing is he's actually being very reasonable here. Like if this isn't true, you shouldn't believe it. Um, and then he's also coupling that with an ethical claim. And it would be unethical to say so because you'd be not just giving, be an, uh, lying or giving false testimony, but you're doing it against the eternal God. So mm -hmm. in a way, he addresses that subjectivity of religious knowledge, um, but he doesn't do it in like our formalized 21st century sense. <laughs> and you've got other things. I'll give you one more and then. I talked a lot. <laughs> no, this is great. This is great. This is really good so, stuff. <laughs> okay. So you've got Bible author, another Bible author, Luke, um, who's following Paul around and uh, he puts, he's writing some, he's writing things down and he puts forth a lot of factual evidence that these things um, that we're talking about actually took place in his day. He even tells you that. So now he could be lying, but he tells you, I've investigated all these things so that you can know the certainty of the things you've been taught. And he's writing to Theophilus. So what he does in, in the chapter three of his letter, um, so the Gospel of Luke, is he actually gives us very carefully exact people, places, governing office, and years in history in which all of this, all of the things he's reporting happen. Um, so I would check out that beginning of chapter three because it, it's packed full of locating the events he describes in a very specific time and place in history. So it's not like these grand religious mythological claims about realms beyond human access where the gods are fighting each other or whatever. 
you can actually go back and say, are these real people? Were they in this place at this time in history? Uh, so generally speaking, a person can look at objective claims of any worldview and investigate and test those claims for truth. And that's the process that I've done with Christianity and I continue to do. So I, like we talked about earlier, I don't just look at like maybe archeological and historical events, but I'm also looking at about what does that philosophical framework claim about these big meta narrative claims about human purpose and value in the universe? And how does that relate to the human experience? But what about other religions and other worldviews? Uh, just because Christianity is true, does it mean that those worldviews or religions are false? It would depend on what those religions are claiming. So um, if Christianity claims that Jesus Christ is God, and as it does, Islam says Jesus Christ is not God. In fact, that's shirk, that's blasphemy. Then they can both be false, but logically they cannot both be true. Hmm. So if Jesus is God, Christianity would be true. But if Jesus is not God, then you need to look for another framework like Islam that says Jesus is not God. So I think part of the problem is when we, or, or like what happens in uh, Buddhism, um, the old, sort of like the ultimate aim of Christianity is for you to become back into right relationship with God so that you can flourish as an individual human being for who you were made to be. But what's the ultimate end in Buddhism? It is a release from the individuality. individuality. You cease to exist. Like you, your goal is to not be you anymore, is to become one. Um, with the essence behind everything. So um, you have to look at that claim and say, so if that's an annihilationist or a, a ceasing to exist, does that fit with human experience? Am I ultimately not valuable? Now, I didn't say relatively. Relatively, you're all valuable and loved and people care about you and you make a difference in this world. Now go to the ultimate level. What happens to you as an individual? And what does your human experience say about that? Do you think you matter? Do you think that you as an individual have importance? And what I find fascinating is a lot of people will say, yes, absolutely. Follow your heart, live your truth. But I'm Buddhist and ultimately I don't matter. And there is no truth about me and my heart doesn't matter. So you got to consider, is this livable in accordance with you, what you're actually professing to believe? Do you actually believe it? Or are you kind of putting together a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't support that's contradictory? Um because for whatever reason, I don't even want to try to guess why. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be trite about mm -hmm. it. So, but I, I see that a lot and I, I'm very, I'm attentive to that. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm not the best thinker out there. There's guys that put this together better than me, but um, that's an important piece when you're looking at what you believe. Why don't I believe in Buddhism? Why don't I believe in Islam? Well, Islam and Christianity, one's true or they're both false. Uh, but they can't both be true because they make opposite truth claims at the biggest levels about the nature of God. Yeah. Well, and Jesus himself made some pretty severe truth claims about himself that would kind of exclude other things. Like I'm thinking John 14, 6, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yeah. Which brings me to this um, thing that I've been thinking about. I'll, I'll stop acting like an atheist here. <laughs> Zoe, <laughs> no, you should have okay. stayed up late. <laughs> 
they, they, I'm sure they appreciate, you know, like, hey, throw some stuff at her. Yeah. Well, Mary Jo, I've been reading this interesting book. Actually, uh, it was recommended by Josh White uh, in one of his sermons. He was talking about this book by Tara Isabella Burton called Strange Rights. Um, I don't think she's a believer, but in it, she talks about how young people today are often just as spiritual as in the past. But today's generation reject dogma and they reject authority. And I've definitely encountered some of this mindset when talking with young women on this podcast. So I'd love your thoughts on this. Why? If someone finds Jesus compelling, but Christianity itself, maybe it's kind of a turnoff because of the rules, quote unquote, or other things. Why can't someone just pick and choose what parts they want to subscribe to and customize the rest? Why can't it just be a, you know, customizable adventure? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I think that becomes problematic. Uh, I'm doing this on the fly, so let's see what I can come up yeah. with. Um, <laughs> I think that might become problematic in that, um, you know, I, and I'm sorry, I'm using scripture for this, but the, the Go passage ahead. that says that, <laughs> why am I apologizing? Uh, <laughs> the heart is deceitful among uh, above all else. Okay. So that relates over to, you know, Socrates, like, you know, the whole idea of knowing thyself right? The hardest thing to know is yourself. Um, and so if you're entering into a philosophical framework and you say, I want to make this philosophical framework fit to myself, what are you actually doing there? Because, um, you know, like I know if I did that, (laughs) I know I would rationalize things. I want to be true, whether or not I have any real evidence or reason for them to be true. So what I would try to do instead is find something of coherency. I would try to say, okay, if I believe this, let me take this all the way to its logical conclusion. Where does that take me? Hmm. And I think we need to do that instead of why can't I just pick and choose what I like? Take what you think you believe or take what you're trying to um, look at and take it all the way out to its logical conclusion. Where does this take you in your full life? And that's one of the things that, like, as far as Christianity, it's taking me back to human flourishing. Um, And that's what I want for myself. But I'm going to have to admit that some of the things I desire don't cause my own flourishing. Hmm. And that's just psychologically sound. So if I approach the endeavor to look at what I want to believe philosophically or, you know, religiously, but I'm inserting all of my psychology in there to make the decisions, I think that's going to not lead you to a good place. Hmm. Yeah. I want to switch gears just a little bit here. Um, It's interesting because I was just talking to someone about this today and I thought, I just read that in Mary Jo's book. Um, But she was asking me, Janelle, do you believe doubt is a sin? And I had some very strong, very strong responses to that. And I'm wondering if you would address that because not everyone that listens to this podcast is a Christian, but there are some people who are Christians who maybe have had doubts about their faith. And I, I know that I have. Um, and so I would love for you to speak to this, Mary Jo, because I know it's something you're passionate about as well. Yeah. So I, um, I encountered push back on having doubt in the church. And I'm, I'm a fast processor. So I, I picked up on it pretty early on that having hard questions about faith was not 
acceptable in Sunday school, especially as a pastor's wife. I was a worship pastor's wife, but so I kind of hid it a bunch um, <laughs> and just did my own secret just study. Sang on the, the song. You just keep going. <laughs> yeah, because my husband's in a you know he's a worship pastor, and I yep. I know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm not deluded. I know if I say, "Hey, I don't believe this," or I have huge doubts about this, that it's going to it's going to affect him and mm-hmm. his um, call to ministry and his calling on his life, what he feels he should be doing. Yeah. So, um, what I have come to find out though is that, like, first of all, I shouldn't have been made to feel like that ever. Um, you know, as an educator, when a child has doubt about something, I welcome it and say, well, let's explore this together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't understand why people don't do that in the church. And I think it goes back to less of um, the Bible and more of human individual insecurities and psychology of what's going on in their own lives. So I would say to the person that said, is doubt a sin? I would say, no, um, there is different kind of doubt, but generally speaking, doubt is a part of the maturing process in faith because you're not the kind of thing that has absolute knowledge. You don't know everything and you never will all the way to your grave. Like you won't. So you're the kind of thing that has rationality and yet you don't know everything. So you have a lot of questions like the questions you've been asking me throughout the show. Well, what if this, what about that? <laughs> Cause there's so many things you could think of. Yeah. You could still like, even the stuff that I've already said, you could say, well, what about X, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, I see doubt as more of a growing up process and it's growing your mind. It's growing your, you're maturing in the faith and um, now you could say, you know, there's different reasons people doubt. Yeah. Some people's doubt is not so, um, just like out of it. Sometimes people are doubting out of a place of being angry or hurt and they just want to get out. And mm-hmm. I understand that, uh, that, that does happen. So I'm not trying to make it all like pretty and everybody's doubt is just part of growing up. Cause that's not always the case, right? There are some people who just, they've been hurt and they want to hurt people. Um, so that happens as well. But I would say the majority of doubters that I've encountered, it's just part of the maturing process and they should be given space for that within the church. And we, as Christians, we need to grow up emotionally to where we're okay with that. We don't get defensive or taken as a personal attack. If somebody disagrees with our point of view, because I mean, imagine that we're representing the most powerful being that exists, God. Mm-hmm. And yet we get flustered or defensive if somebody disagrees with us or has a question yeah that's inconsistent yeah I think too a lot of times people respond in fear you know I'm afraid that you're feeling this way and so let me you know just give you um, authority and assurance that everything's going to be okay and for somebody who's doubting or wrestling with questions that doesn't answer those questions. It just, you know, it's very standoffish and pushes people away. Um, so engaging in conversations, even if um, you're, <laughs> this is to a Christian who's listening, who maybe has a doubter in your life, you know, be willing to just ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, help me in this, you know, to respond in love. Uh, people don't need answers so often as they need to be heard. And, um, and the Holy Spirit will help you if you ask him, you know, I, I believe that I know you do too, Mary Jo. Yeah. I mean, the Bible's clear, you know, when you stand before people and have to give an account, the Holy Spirit will be there with you. He's um, a comforter. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> so, and he'll empower you. So you don't have to have all the answers. You've got the one who does. So anyway, um, well, Mary Jo, 
uh, the Finding Something Real podcast. This is the last question I always ask everyone, by the way, but I try not to give it away. Um, it's always, uh, usually it's uh, off the cuff. Um, the Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Real is an acronym for these things that we can find in relationship with Jesus Christ. Restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Of those things that we can find in relationship with Christ, which stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? Oh, man. Um, my first thought, like the one that hit me the hardest uh, was eternity in the sense that it sort of encompasses the authenticity, love, and restoration of the others. Mm-hmm. That um, when I keep my mind fixed on what it means for God to be eternal and um yet he unconditionally loves us and that God cannot be anything other than authentic, right? So when he's dying on a cross for us to restore us to him, that is who he is. That's the kind of being that wants me in relationship with him. And that is, if I really let that sit in um, and think on it, that's, that's an overwhelming love. Uh, And I, and it shows me how much I'm greatly valued Um, no matter what anybody else says about me ever, that that kind of being, that eternal being loves me so much Mm. uh, and wants what's absolutely the best for me. Uh, Individually, me, Mary Jo, not just for everybody, but me personally. And uh, so that's what stuck out to me is that eternity, the eternality of God and all that goes with it. Mm. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Mary Jo Sharp. I sure have appreciated this. We'll link everything in the show notes. And uh, until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all, at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus. I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.